You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hi, I'm Sally Jenkins, a sports columnist for the Washington Post here, and I'm so excited to be talking to a woman who looks good in a hard hat, among other things. (laughs) (laughs) And now I know how athletes feel. That was a good pump-up video. (laughs) It was, it was. Let's start off with the the big news. Uh, You made a headline on Friday, $240 million media deal for the National Women's Soccer League, Uh, 40-fold increase for your business, but also an all-time record for a women's sports league. Um, Can you tell me, for so long, it was hard to get big investments in women's sports. What did you sell these people on? What, uh, what, What are your new partners buying into? Our new partners are buying into a vision They know and recognize that women's sports historically has been undervalued. And if you compare women's sports and the NWSL to our male counterparts, we don't have the benefit of having been in places and spaces where people actually watch sports. And so you have to look at some non-traditional metrics to really understand and recognize that the investment thesis around the NWSL is all in the future. And looking at those benchmarks, we know that sports as an asset class outperforms almost any other investment. And so these four partners, where we'll be broadcasting all of our games with CBS, ESPN, Amazon, and Scripps, are going to provide an opportunity for us to establish that proof of concept that if we are in places and spaces where people watch sports, that we will be able to build that audience. So they're they're buying into a growth concept, right? They're buying into a growth concept, and we have early indications of success. So if you look at this past season, for example, our attendance, our average attendance is up over 25%, and we averaged over 10,500 per match for all of our games across the regular season. Our CBS viewership, although we only had a handful of games, six games over the course of our season, was up 40%. And so early indications show that this is a good investment, and they're betting on the future knowing that the investments we've made over the last 12 to 18 months have already proven that they are worth their investment. You know, there's been such enormous growth across the board. Every It seems like every week we read a, a story about a new attendance record in the WNBA, a new ratings record. Um, for your league, a new there's always a new high, it seems like, women's college basketball, University of Iowa playing in front of a football stadium. What is driving that growth? What do you think has happened that is suddenly pushing women's sports from this niche interest into these really, really large numbers? What's, well, what are we watching? I think there's a couple of factors at play. The first is that The next generation of fans and consumers we know care about cause. They care about cause not just because it is the right thing to do, but they care about it from a business perspective. They actually make spending decisions based on companies and brands and values that are aligned. And because of that, you're seeing a complete explosion of women's sports because there are values alignment that exists with the next generation of fan and consumers. I think the second thing that you're seeing is that from a entertainment value perspective, this is new, this is exciting. These athletes in our league are culturally relevant beyond the pitch. And that is what men's sports have always been selling, which is these are athletes that are relatable and that you might want to aspire to be if you're a kid who's either playing the sport or watching the sport. And our athletes are already that. And it's one of the few sports in the US that if you ask 
a group of 100 or so people in a room like this room, whether or not you are a sports fan, to close your eyes and imagine greatness, you would probably think of female soccer players. There is almost no industry where that is true. And because of that, our league is really carrying the tailwinds that exist globally around greatness for women's soccer on the backs of the, US, the success of the US women's national team since 1999. Right, and you're the home of all of our greatest women's uh, World Cup and Olympic athletes, the professional home. That's correct. And many of those heroes who many of us grew up with, including myself, are now investors in our league. And so you see we've taken them from the pitch into the boardroom and into the investor seats. And so there's a relevant that transcends all generations that is happening around the NWSL. So it's been one of my longtime pet theories that, that one of the things that there's always been underpinning women's sports, there's been cause, there's been a larger, whether it's equal, equal pay, um, whether it was a quiet resentment at treating women's assets as junk. There's a famous story that Candace Parker, the greatest player in the WNBA arguably, had to practice at a rec center in Chicago because she didn't have access to first class facilities. Um, there's always been something, it seems that women athletes were fighting for in addition to a trophy. Um, so. Does the future success of women's sports, are there going to need to be more causes? And if so, what in your mind is the next cause? Well, I think what, what you're seeing happen around women's sports is, as we talked about earlier, this conflation of doing good and doing well. And so what we talk about in our investment thesis, whether it's with media partners or investors or sponsors, is that this next generation that's making spending decisions care about cause from a business perspective, and 80% of household spend decisions are being made by women. And so when you have a value proposition that, from a business perspective, aligns all of those different interests, you see outsized returns. Right. The, um most interesting thing I've heard you say just recently in an interview with um, uh, Lynn Williams and Sam Mewis, two of your players, you said teams compete on the pitch but not in business. What do you mean by that? Well, we are, as a league and from a business perspective, we are part of a single entity. And so our 12 teams, we will be 14 in 2024, we will be 16 in 2026. We are all part of a single entity that is the National Women's Soccer League. And from a business perspective, like many of the other leagues, if you look at the NBA or the NHL, it is our job at the league to share best practices across all of our teams. And so if you are in San Diego and we have a team here in Washington, D.C., if there's something that's working well from a business perspective in one market, we at the league take that best practice and we share it with other markets. Of course. We could not do that with competitive issues as it relates to the playing of the game and player information and scouting and all those kinds of competitive decisions. But from a business perspective, we really are partners and it's our job to lift the ecosystem. Got it. Um, let's talk about your personal story for a minute. You, you grew up in Brooklyn, Orthodox Jewish household, not much exposure to sports. Then you get to the University of Michigan. You, before you become a lawyer, you major in sports management. What is that through line? Like, where on earth did you get this interest? Yeah. 
My, my parents asked the same question because not only did I grow up in an Orthodox Jewish household where although I could have and should have been the product of Title IX, there were no sports for girls in Brooklyn because I would assume lack of access to fields. My parents did not experience sort of corporate America and so I didn't have them as role models. My mom is, was, is, she still practices, a psychologist and my dad was an entrepreneur. So I sort of paved my own way and really for me, I grew up in this environment where I was surrounded by people from different backgrounds and I observed through sport that it was one of the few things in our social fabric that actually had the power to unite my community in Brooklyn. And because of that, I made a decision at 16 years old that I wanted to work in this industry and put my blinders on and did everything humanly possible to get work experience so that I could achieve my goal of actually becoming a commissioner. As strange as that sounds, that actually was my stated goal when I was 16. I wanted to be the commissioner of a league. So I feel really fortunate watching that highlight reel and having this conversation with you that I and manifesting what really was my, my childhood career ambition to lead a sports league because I really believed it has the power to change the world. You've worked for just about every men's sports league you can name. You've done business with the NFL. You were at the NHL for many, many years. Um, I don't know, did you do Major League Baseball? I did, did my law some? firm, I, yes, I did. So, okay, well, did you learn what you wanted to do and not wanted to do from dealing with men's major sports leagues? How, how did that exper those experiences color your, your view of your commissioner's job? Yeah, um, well, first of all, I had the good fortune of being able to have a front row seat to some of the best commissioners in, in history. Um, and in particular, with my years at the NHL, I watched and worked directly for Commissioner Bettman in the NHL and he is notoriously known for being one of the best at managing owners and building enterprise value for franchises and for the league and what he has achieved on behalf of the NHL, which I remember when hockey was descri described as a niche sport and transcending the mainstream, and those were the years when I was there. And so there are so many best practices that I learned from that experience as importantly, I learned what the expectations of the industry are for sports. And I think that is, I think, one of the most important takeaways for me that I've been able to apply here. Some examples include how we deal with players and the Player Association, how we have managed and navigated this new media rights cycle. I know what the questions are that need to be answered, and so we can come to the table prepared to unlock the potential of the NWSL using some of those traditional benchmarks that have guided the growth of men's professional sports in our country. I was talking to Clara Wusai, who's uh, owner of the um, New York Liberty, uh, and co-owner of the Brooklyn Nets. And she was telling me that um, so many times people who invest in, um, in, in sports franchises, they look for the big men's franchise return. It, they talk in billions of dollars. Her point was that there is excellent return on investments in women's sports. They're just smaller, but it's still a very, very good return. What's it, does the proportionality there affect the narrative when you're trying to sell the league? And, what do you tell people who expect gargantuan results or gargantuan uh, profits or they expect to buy in for gargantuan amounts of money? 
Look, when Steve Ballmer bought the LA Clippers several years ago, people thought that was a crazy number. It was, I believe, over $2 billion. And today, that looks like a steal. If you look at all of the sell prices from the men's leagues over the last 30, 40, 50 years, there is absolutely no question that they increase in enterprise value in five to 10 year cycles. We are 11 years old. And so I often say to some of, in some of those conversations with potential investors, even though we are 11 years old, which is teeny tiny relative to the men's leagues, we're actually in many ways only two years old because for the first nine years of the NWSL's existence, we were actually operated and managed by US soccer, which is the federation in our country. So we weren't even an independent business until the year 2022. So imagine what will happen in the future when we now have our own independent business decisions and we're actually making those business decisions on a first principles basis, which is what you see happening now. So we're only one to two years into the beginning of our growth and we describe it and there's actually data to support it that we are at that beginning of the hockey stick growth effect. And so it's actually not really that hard to sell from an investment perspective because smart investors see that value proposition and we see it with the types of owners that we're investing. For example, last week we announced that the Tisch family who own the Giants invested in Gotham in near New York, New Jersey, New York, and they won the championship this past weekend. So I shared with her that was really good timing on their part. <laughs> they closed about five days before they won the championship. Yeah. Earlier this year, we sold the Chicago Red Stars to the Ricketts family who own the Chicago Cubs. And so one of the most important litmus tests for us is seeing the quality of the investors that we're attracting. And those are great examples of the kinds of families that we're inviting into our ecosystem that we know are gonna be instrumental in building the future. It's really interesting. Um, it, it sounds as though a lot of male leadership missed a double espresso sitting right under their nose. Yeah, so. well, uh, good for us. Yes. We're, we're gonna make it right really quickly. We, we act with a lot of urgency because we do, I think, collectively feel that we have a lot of time that we have to make up for. And it, for that reason, we have a very motivated staff and very motivated players who could not be more excited to actually manifest the league that we know should have been a long time ago, but we're ready for it. Great. We're going to have to leave it there. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hi, everyone. My name is Alex Friedman. I'm a managing director and partner at BCG, supporting our private equity, consumer, and digital businesses. A bit about me, before coming to BCG, I actually co-founded and built a company called Lola um, that addresses the need for ingredient transparency in women's personal care products. And at BCG, I work with our clients on solving some of their toughest challenges. And I'm also part of a multidisciplinary research team that works to study the current and future spending power of women in the US and drive towards solutions to close the, the women's health and wealth gap in the US once and for all. And it's known as the Innovate Her program at BCG. I'm excited to be here on stage with our North America chair, Sharon Marcel. Um, Sharon was on this stage a year ago speaking to the care economy, and that research actually was part of an executive order um, that President Biden presented since that day. 
and Sharon oversees our North America business and 12,000 um, uh, colleagues in Mexico, the US, and Canada. Sharon previously oversaw our consumer practice, and after that, our public sector practice. And we're here today to speak to a topic near and dear to both of us, the economic potential and power of women in the US. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Alex. It's great to be here with you today. Thanks so much for, for being on stage with me. This is such a great um, group of women, it's, and it's a pleasure to be here. And you talked a little bit about the care economy. I had the pleasure of being here last year where we talked about the care economy, but but today we'll talk about an equally important topic, which is the wealth gap and the health gap in terms of women in the United States. That's right, and Sharon, we're at the Global Women's Summit. Everyone in this room is incredibly invested and excited about building solutions and services for women. Um, you know, I can't think of a more fitting stage to be on than this one, and I can't think of a more fitting city to be in today, the day after Jill Biden announced the first ever White House initiative focused on clinical research in women's health. So really excited about that progress. Uh, and as you mentioned, the two areas of focus today are the gaps, the gender gaps in health and wealth. Yeah. And you mentioned, Alex, I ran the consumer practice. So that was many years ago in BCG. But in 2009, BCG did a piece of seminal research um, where we surveyed 12,000 women across the US. And we looked at every industry area. And we looked at what were the gaps and unfilled needs of, of women across every industry area. And um, the two laggards were financial institutions um, and also healthcare. And so what you saw in terms of financial institutions was products that didn't quite fit and then messages that didn't resonate and even sometimes were stereotypical. Um, and interestingly, in, in the health realm, what we saw was, was women were least, less satisfied than men, particularly middle-aged women. So there was a real gap. Now you fast forward to now, many of those gaps still exist. And, and we can talk a little bit about what that looks like and then also the opportunity. But I still think as we sit here today, there's enormous opportunity. That's great, Sharon. You know, I hear you. There's a ton of progress that has been made, but definitely there's way more that we can be doing to close these gaps. Yeah, there's, there's so much more that we can be doing to close these gaps. So let me talk a little bit about the, the wealth side. So if you look at baby boomers um, and those households, 40% of investment decisions are made by women. If you look at millennial households, 70% of the investment decisions are made by women. Having said that, if you double click onto that, there's still a confidence gap in terms of women. So only 28% of women making those investments are fully confident that they're making the right investments. So what do you see? You see that actually women are more conservative in the investments that they make. They invest in lower return vehicles than men do, and that impacts actually returns and wealth accumulation. Interestingly, it's also reflective of the industry. So if you look at wealth advisors, 70% of wealth advisors today are, are still men, only 30% are of women. So that's thinking about personal wealth. If, if you expand it and you think about the economy, BCG partners with an, an organization called the First Women's Bank. It's based in Chicago. It was incorporated in 2021. And the insight that First Women's Bank had was that only 16% of all commercial loans went to women. And that only represented 4% of the total capital. So in working with First Women's Bank, you know, BCG did a piece of research that said if women globally had the same access to capital as men, 
what could that generate in terms of economic impact? And the number is $2.1 trillion. So there's enormous opportunity at an individual household level and then also at a macro level. That, that resonates deeply. The scale of it is incredible. I remember when I was an entrepreneur on the VC circuit trying to raise capital for my female-founded, female-focused brand, um, just trying to explain the investment opportunity to investors and why it was so important to back a female-forward business. The, the, the gap was massive just to try to get that across in those rooms as we were raising capital. Um, you know, to me, it felt like maybe I was doing something that the message wasn't landing. Maybe it was the way that we were telling the story, but what we learned over time and what we really felt was that it was actually a systemic issue, and that was why it was so hard to raise capital as a female founder. I had the pleasure of um, interviewing Jenny Abramson recently. Jenny's based here in Washington, and she is the founder and CEO of the largest venture firm um, that backs women founders and women CEOs. And in that conversation, she and I discussed sort of her um, rationale for, for getting into that business. Um, and she said, actually, 86% of the decision makers in venture capital today are men. And if you look at the money that flows to women that are, are, are starting new startup businesses, it's 2.1% of venture funding. Um, and so again, you're looking at, at the gap, it's, it's very much there. Now, on the positive, let me, let me be positive for a moment. Um, you know, Rethink Impact had, had a, a new capital raise. It was oversubscribed. It was like a tremendous success, so that's terrific. And if you look at the data, I think what, what is being understood better today than it ever was before, women make great CEOs, particularly CEOs of startups. And why is that? Because they're actually really good stewards of money. Um, and, and they're unlikely, less likely, you know, coming back to the risk point, to take huge risks in terms of that, that seed and startup money. So I think you know, we're starting to get to a place where hopefully we, we continue to see positive momentum. Right. We're seeing the proof points. Okay. Now, Sharon, I want to switch over from wealth to health. What are you seeing in North America women's health? Okay. Um, so today, if you look at women's health spend overall, it's, it's $9 billion, actually in 2021, not today. BCG research forecasts that $9 billion will grow to $29 billion, which is terrific. That's a 220% increase in terms of funding of consumer health. Having said that, um, if you look at the total R&D dollars that is spent against women's health care, um, today it's 4%. And that includes in major disease areas, cardiovascular, mental health, cancer research. There's a real gap to the spend in, in men's research, even though there's, there's an acknowledgment that there are real biological differences. What that means, Alex, is that if you look at something like adverse reactions to drugs, you know, in many cases, you can see women having three times the adverse reactions and misdiagnosis. So if you're a woman, going into the hospital in many places across the US um, with a heart attack, you're 25% more likely to be misdiagnosed. So, so to the positive, you know, some positive trends, but also the bar um, that we're coming from is quite low. Those are some incredible stats. I mean, you know, when we think about 
kind of bridging wealth to health, when we think about the amount of capital that's flowing into women's hands paired with that trend line and you know, new guidance and information coming into women's hands with the power already held in consumer spending, it feels like the sky's the limit here. Well, you say the power in consumer spending. So if you look at women and healthcare decisions, women control 80% of the healthcare decisions for their families and they're great stewards of funds and they make great decisions for their families. So click, that's, that's an important fact. Um, and on, again, on the optimist side of me, I mean, you look at the funding in terms of VC funding, PE funding, there was you know, 3.3 billion, I think, of PE funding that went into women's health. There's 1,200 um, new startups in the women, women's health area, which you're deeply familiar with, which right. is across 17 life stages of women. So there, you know, there's, there's momentum. And, and I think what BCG thinks is that over the next 10 years, we're going to see some real breakthroughs in terms of women's health due to this investment level in the area of fertility, in the area of menopause, in the area of pregnancy. So there's hope on the horizon. That's exactly right. I wanted to double click on one stat you said, which is that 4% of R&D goes to women's health. I remember when I started my business in the menstrual care category, there had been no clinical studies done on tampons ever, a product that had been on the market for decades, a FDA-regulated device that goes inside a woman's body a week, a month, for 40 years. So to me, that was shocking. And I remember going into these pitch meetings with venture capitalists and having to actually explain why ingredients regulation was important in women's health. So if we had some of that data, you know, it would have been a much easier sell, and I assume even more startups would be emerging. Absolutely. No question about it, Alex. Um, but I definitely hear you when you say you're optimistic about the market. There are a lot of rich trends here and a lot of enthusiasm and money flowing in that direction. So we're excited to see that um, progress. Yes. Um, I think we only have a minute or two left. I just wanted to quickly cover off on a couple of things that we think about at BCG that really is helping bend the trend for women's health and wealth improving offerings. So the first thing to focus on here is product. Let's make sure that we have products that take the woman consumer in mind and we're building for her. Second um, is go to market and business. We're building businesses that actually um, go have a marketing strategy geared to her and an operating model that services her. Services and operations, are we considering the end-to-end -end journey of the woman consumer, including customer service, and speaking to her at every moment and servicing her in there? And then organization, is there woman representation at every level of the organization that's building products for her? And a stat that we talked about over the last couple of days is that only 5.6% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. That's 28 people. So obviously, there's room to improve there, too. Um, just wanted to quickly close it out. I think you know when you're looking at the ecosystem and you're solving for women's health and wealth, there are lots of things that we in this room can be doing also, whether it's demanding more action from representatives to thinking about how we can ask more of our companies in supporting women's wealth and health. We're at BCG working with our clients day in and day out across industries and sectors, you know, urgently trying to solve some of these issues. And there's really no one size fits all or turnkey solution. We just are all coming at it from different angles. And we're looking forward to progress here. Um, Sharon, I know that we could talk about these topics all day. But I think our time is up. So um, thank you, everyone. We, you know, please, if you want to learn more about the efforts that we're doing at BCG, you can go to www.bcg.com backslash x backslash innovate her. Thank you. Thank you.
And now, back to Washington Post Live. Good afternoon, everyone. It's so good to see you, and I'm very happy to be here. I'm Alexi McCammond, an opinions editor here at The Washington Post. As you just saw from this video, I'm so happy to be joined by Tara Ragavir, the director of KC Tenants. They're trying to make Kansas City ground zero for tenants' rights and affordable housing. I'd love if you could start just by telling us in a few sentences, which of course is hard to encapsulate all of your work, exactly how you're trying to do that. Paint a picture for us what that work looks like in Kansas City. Sure, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, we founded Casey Tenants in 2019. Three women, Tiana Caldwell, Brandy Granados, and Diane Charity, all of whom had been deeply impacted by housing insecurity, got together and they decided that enough was enough and that their city was worth fighting for and that it could feel inevitable that developers would get richer as they got priced out. It could feel inevitable that a coffee would cost $5 and their rent would triple and they wouldn't have any place to live anymore. But none of that was actually inevitable, not if we started to organize. So we started a tenant union back in 2019, which has grown to be the citywide tenant union in Kansas City, Missouri. We have 9,467 members. We've elected members of city council. We've fought for and passed citywide policy. We've organized buildings and trailer parks to fix conditions and snatch back millions of dollars from gentrifying developers. And all of this is within the context of the tenant union, which is the vehicle that we're really invested in continuing to grow. You know, I think when we think about affordable housing and people talking about these inevitabilities, there's a certain level of shame that folks might feel when they're renting. If they can't make rent, if they have to move in with someone who might be abusive to help them pay for rent, you are describing what to me feels like a clear political identity for this movement, maybe for the first time. I wonder if you agree with that and how you think about the movement and your role in building a political identity for these renters. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about tenants as a political class, and that is sort of a new idea in this country where tenant, if it's an identity at all, is it has been an identity of shame. We're taught to aspire for ownership, right? But we're ignoring the fact when we rest on that aspiration that ownership has not been accessible to many communities in this country ever. So tenant we're reclaiming as an identity of power. And a lot of the work of what we do in a tenant union is actually translating private pain into public power. Mm -hmm. And that power actually comes in the form of collective, right? The theory of a union is very simple. We're stronger together than we are as individuals. Our landlords are nameless and face faceless to many of us. They're big corporations. They don't live in our towns. We individually don't matter to them. We're line items in their budget. We're disposable. But when we get together and when we can withhold our rent or take some other kind of collective action, then we matter and then we're powerful. How much of it, in your experience, is appealing to folks' hearts over their minds? When you talk about these personal stories, I can't help but be moved. I'm sure other people are feeling things in the room. When you're trying to get some sort of legislation passed or fight for tenants' rights in some way, how much of those personal stories do you share with folks in power versus sort of just a policy idea or agenda? You know, we say a lot that the people closest to the problem are the closest to the solutions. Mm. So everything that we do has people who are directly impacted at the center of it. But the limitation that we observe all the time is that decision makers, even the media, are willing to listen to people's story of pain, mm. but not willing to trust their expertise. 
So actually, there is a limit to the hearts part of this. Yeah. And a lot of what we're trying to do is really position tenants as the experts of their own experience and the makers of their own liberation. Um, it's not a project that's done yet by any means, but the tenant union is a powerful vehicle that takes us in that direction. What's one type of power or right that you would hope renters could have if you could snap your fingers and change things tomorrow? We need rent regulation. We need regulations on the annual rent increases that landlords are able to impose on their tenants. Currently, the market is completely unregulated. It's the Wild West out there, right? Yeah. And you probably know this, know this as someone who lives in DC, rent, the rent is too damn high. <laughs> and the rent is too damn high, that's just a fact. Uh, just today, the CPI numbers came out, the Consumer Price Index reports that rent is the most enduring and most significant contributor to overall inflation. So there's an, a large-scale macroeconomic impact to the rent. And then on a micro level, the rent is the biggest bill that most poor and working-class people pay in this country. So fluctuations in the price of rent, it's not like fluctuations in the price of toilet paper or pens. Right. It's a much, much more significant impact in people's budgets. Right. And the most important intervention that we could make in terms of policy is stabilizing people in their homes by imposing rent regulations. We were talking uh, in the green room about different places that we've lived. Obviously, you're Kansas City-based. I'm here in DC now. I have lived in New York before. You've lived in Chicago before. Are there any model cities that you are looking to right now or that you think are on the right track, whether it is with respect to rent regulation or some other form of reform? The policy that's possible at the local level is really limited. In states like Missouri, where I live, Kansas City is limited in what they can do. Even if the general population of Kansas City supported something like rent regulation, it's preempted at the state level. And this is true in many, many states across the country, both blue and red. So really, we need federal level intervention when we're talking about something like rent regulation. What we can do in Kansas City and what we're trying to do is become a model city for building housing that's off of the private market and not available for speculation and investment. So is there a model city in the US today? No. Um, Kansas City will be the model city. Um, and in the meantime, we also just need federal intervention to regulate a market that has run completely amok. You know, in January, the Biden administration issued directives to help tenants amid rising housing costs. You have said you didn't think they went far enough. What should they do and what issue do you have with the steps that they have taken. Yeah, so in another capacity, I work with tenant unions across the country. We have 100 tenant unions coming to DC today, or 100 tenants coming to DC today. From all across the country? From all across the country, from Louisville, uh, Kentucky, to Bozeman, Montana, and everywhere in between. And those tenants are here advocating for federal intervention. The rental market is so consolidated now, and that consolidation means that a few corporations have price-setting power that sets a floor for rents across the country. Meanwhile, the federal government is in big business with our landlords. So the federal government backs $150 billion in federal, federally-backed mortgages every year. And that is where the federal government actually has power and leverage. Even without congressional action, the Federal Housing Finance Agency could regulate rents by imposing conditions on those federally backed loans. Mm. Our theory is simple. If there's public money going to finance or subsidize private development of housing, that public money should come with strings attached. And some of those strings should be conditions like rent regulations. 
I know sometimes with activism and grassroots organizing through reporting and just watching on the ground, it can almost feel like you're shouting into the void sometimes when you don't see things getting done. Who has turned out to be a good partner, either behind the scenes or publicly at the federal level? Are you finding folks in the administration are receptive to what you all are talking about, or are you still kind of facing these blocks? We're still working through it, but you know the January announcements from the White House that you mentioned had a lot to do with the organizing that we've been doing for years. Mm -hmm. And we worked closely with the Biden administration to make sure that tenants were part of a conversation on housing and that housing was part of a conversation on the economy in a way that it has not been until recent years. So we're proud of some of that progress. We're also looking forward to the leadership that the director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, Sandra Tom Thompson, will show on this issue. She has stuck her neck out and really prioritized tenants in a way that we haven't seen from the federal government yet. And there's a lot more work to do, right? I, I would argue that if the Biden administration doesn't have a plan on the rent specifically, they don't have a plan on the economy. And we're hoping to provide them a political opportunity to actually take some material action that would change a lot of lives. You mentioned 100 different tenants, part of this union across the country here in DC today. Of course, we wish they could be in the room with us. You can't tell us about all 100, but I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about Janae, who you helped run for city council. Unfortunately, she lost, but you went through that experience with her. And just kind of explain to us who is one of these people who belongs to the tenant union? What do they look like? Where are they coming from? What are they fighting for? Why should we all care? How can we relate to who they are? Right. Janae is amazing. Uh, she is one of my leaders in Kansas City. Um, and she was in this video. She was in this featured. video, yep. yes. She and I met back in 2019, around this time in 2019. And at the time, she was working overnights at Quick Trip, a local gas station. Uh, she's a single mom of twins. She's about my age, so she's 31. Um, she's black and grew up in a very white part of Kansas City, pretty alienated from her family and her community. And she found Casey Tennant's during a really horrible time in her life. She had had to move her uh, abusive ex back in with her in order to afford the rent. Mm -hmm. And it was a horrible compromise she had to make with herself that put herself and her kids in danger, but it was so that they could keep a roof over their head. So she found the tenant union and we haven't been able to get rid of her since. She's been <laughs> amazing and has really grown as a leader within the union. Um, you know, she started organizing with our Tenants Bill of Rights campaign. She then became our city hall liaison. She was one of our black organizing fellows. And then she responded when we asked her if she would run for city council and she did. She ran an incredible race citywide and won 19,633 votes. She won 19,633 votes as a black single mom in a city on the border between a slave state and a free state, in a city where they call us radicals every day of the week, mm -hmm. but the city came out for her. And she lost by just a small percentage point, but in the end, I think we actually won because we showed the city that the tenant union means business, that we're not going anywhere, and I got my best organizer back. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Janae's just one story, but right. as you said, there's 100 tenants who are coming to D.C. today, and for all of them, the rent is too damn high, and for none of them, there's a path to homeownership. Something's got to give, and the way that we are forging forward is through the tenant union. Yeah, and um, we'll have to wrap up soon, but you talked about Janae, 31, single black mother. I'm imagining they're old, young, of all different races, from obviously all across the country. You're noticing any differences uh, in age, or is it sort of just 
all 31-year-olds, all millennials? Do you see older folks who are still in this fight dealing not with at, this? Not at all. We Our age range at Casey Tenants is like three years old to 73, wow. if not older. Some people aren't telling me their age, right? So there's, <laughs> there's a huge range of ages, races. The tenant union will be in the 21st century what the labor union was for poor and working class people in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is this is the vehicle that will connect people across race, across class, across age to forge together for a struggle that's led by the people who are the experts of their own experience. What we say about Casey Tenants all the time is that the union is something that none of us has experienced but all of us deserve. Well, that's uh, unfortunately all the time we have. So Tara, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.